Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. The January 6th committee is continuing its public hearings, of course, and Georgia continues to play a significant role in uh, what they're talking about, including yesterday when B.J. Pack, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia, uh, testified. There will be more Georgians involved in the weeks ahead, and of course we're going to stay on top of all of that news Uh, Today, though, uh, we'll get to that in the show, but uh, today, let's start with talking about the very important governor's race that uh, we have here in Georgia between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. So I'm going to introduce the panel and uh, start with developments in that race. It's Tuesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, it's great to have you here. I can't help but wonder... Given your years of experience of working on the Hill, whether you think to yourself, gee, I kind of wish I were back up there covering this, or whether you're saying, thank goodness I'm not in the middle of all of that. (laughs) Very much the latter. Oh, my goodness. Every time I hear about a gang of 10, a gang of 8 working on some compromise after a crisis, it's, it's such a familiar story. Hours of your life standing in a hallway waiting for negotiations to finish. So I am very glad that's not my life anymore. I completely understand that. And we're very glad that we have you here reporting on uh, uh, news in the state and, and of course, beyond. Um, Karen Owen is back with us. Karen, of course, a political science professor at um, University of West Georgia, but now stepping up as the interim dean of University College, a big jump in uh, her status at the university. What uh, You mentioned it to me before the show, but kind of describe briefly what that means to be dean of University College. It's sort of, you've got a lot of things in the mix there, right? Yes, University College is a unique college at West Georgia in that we have student success initiatives and first-year programming within the college, along with two academic programs, interdisciplinary studies and civic engagement and public service. So we have academic and student affairs in the college, which is exciting. I will add, though, tomorrow I would miss the congressional hearings from a staffer's point of view because I got to feed good questions to the congressional members. So I do miss that kind of input when I see these uh, hearings going on. I am glad you said that. It's been a long time since we pointed out that you did work on the Hill before you began uh, teaching at uh, the University of West Georgia. You were t- uh, Nathan, Nathan Deal's office? Whose office were yes. you in? Yes, I was in Nathan, Nathan Deal's office. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's what I thought. Okay, thank you for reminding us of that. Audrey Haynes is back with us, too. Audrey Haynes teaches political science at the University of Georgia and also oversees a program which I keep on on Facebook. I see more and more uh, activity around young students who are involved in Audrey's program where they are learning about how to have careers in uh, politics. Um, 
Audrey, uh, that's, I think, one of your proudest achievements uh, at university, isn't it? Oh, it is. Um, and uh, summer is a great time because this is when we have a lot of students who are out in the field and they are doing internships um, all over the place, uh, primarily in uh, Washington, D.C., and also working on a huge number of campaigns right now in our own state that are very competitive. So some of them are, have even, even though they're still students, have been hired as staff on a number of these campaigns. So we are seeing a lot of success in, in what we're doing and training these students and, and teaching them really how to be successful professionals in what is a very challenging field. Absolutely. The Applied Politics Program at the University of Georgia. All right, Tamar, let's start with uh, the governor's race. Um, we know that one of the most important groups uh, that uh, candidates for office try to gain support from are teachers. Uh, they uh, represent, I, I don't know the exact percentage of the population, the voting population, but regardless of their sheer numbers, they are considered an influencer group. They are respected by people in their communities, by their families, and so uh, they are very important to uh, politicians. Back when Zell Miller was governor running for a second term, he gave teachers a big pay raise that played out over several years, but nevertheless was significant. On the other side of the picture, Roy Barnes, when he was running for re-election, lost, had lost support from teachers because his educational programs, um, many of them uh, were uh, designed to give incentives to the what he thought of as the teachers who proved they were good at their jobs and, and uh, eliminate jobs of teachers who were not uh, doing well. So he lost the teacher vote. So it is not surprising that both Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp are doing all they can to uh, reach teachers right now. Yes? Yeah, exactly. We've seen a new proposal from Stacey Abrams that would raise the minimum salary for Georgia public school teachers to about $50,000 a year, which is a pretty substantial increase. I think right now the starting pay is about 39000 which was shockingly low when I heard that number. Oh, my goodness. Um, and, of course, Governor Kemp, over the last couple of years, he made a $5,000 teacher pay raise, a huge campaign promise when he was on the trail. And he was able to deliver that, that full amount, uh, I believe it was this year, in the, in the budget. So, of course, this is a huge constituency, as you mentioned, Bill, um, and one that's very much in the spotlight right now, given a lot of the culture wars that we've seen play out in the legislature with a host of bills detailing parental involvement in what kind of teachers do. So obviously these folks are on the front lines and their endorsement matters a lot given the sheer number of teachers in Georgia. And I know Stacey Abrams just got the endorsement of the, I believe it's the Georgia Association of Educators, yeah. uh, which is big. Uh, but I know that, that Governor Kemp will exactly be sitting on the sidelines when it comes to uh, this constituency either. Uh, the quote from Abrams, Audrey, is when our pipeline is thinning and our exodus in is increasing, talking about teachers, of course. We are losing the fight for our children's future. We need a governor who does not see education as an election year gimmick, but sees our responsibility as a guarantee for the strongest future uh, for our uh, people. And Audrey, of course, we have to point out that clearly she and her campaign recognized that the camp raises to teachers um, were uh, important enough that she has to counter them. 
Yes, they were important, and education in the state generally is viewed as an important issue. And I, I just want to point out that the investment that the the Georgia government has made over time, particularly beginning with Zell Miller and Hope and Zell, have invested so much into the state that clearly in terms of our economic status and our educational status, we do so much better than surrounding states. Um, and there is an incentive for both parties to continue that. You know, as far as the campaign goes, um, I think the number of Georgia teachers is somewhere close to about 120,000 in the state. And even if you're not potentially winning over every one of those votes with a raise, perhaps you are also keeping people from being super engaged against you. Um, so, you know, it has a, 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 a number of varied effects. And teachers, compared to other states in this state, are paid relatively well. Comparatively, if you look at uh, uh, salaries uh, in other southern states and in the Midwest, we do pretty well. But um, I think the average right now is somewhere, I think Tamar was right, about 39 to 40-something 40, 40 thousand for beginning. Starting, um, yeah. Starting. And then the, the average is somewhere around 60,000. Um, so I also think they have to be careful, too, when they're talking about this, because there are a lot of people in, in other sectors that might, you know, feel like, you know, why are they getting so much attention? But at the same time, most people in the state are parents. They have kids in public education, and they, they recognize that education is something that really has an impact on uh, their, their kids' future. Karen, the uh, Abrams campaign estimated that this $11,000 increase just for starting teachers uh, would cost something like $412 million. They say they would pay for this out of the existing budget monies. Um, they would not need a pay raise uh, to do it. Uh, the Kemp campaign uh, came back at them and said, uh, that's nonsense. It will cost more than the money they're talking about, and there's no doubt they're going to have to raise taxes if they did this, and here's a quote from Kemp's spokeswoman, uh, or a spokesman, rather, following the lead of her pals in the Biden administration, Stacey Abrams' latest Hail Mary proposal uh, in new state spending joins an ever-growing pile of pie-in-the-sky plans that would make inflation worse and require higher taxes on Georgia families to pay for it all. Karen? The two biggest items in the state budget is Medicaid and education. And Stacey Abrams is talking about both of those, expanding access to health care through expanding Medicaid and then now providing more money into the education budget to support teachers. Very strong and important initiative, both that affect so many Georgians. But yes, it does require a lot of money and it requires revenue. And the state has been doing very well this past year or two and had a you know, surplus if we think about it in terms of revenue because the governor was able to give back to taxpayers some of that money. However, if inflation continues at the speed it is right now, if we're facing potentially more interest rate hikes and the, the Fed can't control this and we end up slipping into a recession, we could have problems like what Governor Nathan Deal faced when he was coming in and then we get strapped with the budget and there's not enough revenue coming into the state coffers and you have to look at cuts or raising taxes, which is not a good idea. So I think there's a lot that has to be covered in these conversations. It's an election year where it's push, 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 put your issues out there, want to en engage voters and get them to support you in your programs. But long term, you have to think about how the budget can maintain this. 
these programs that you're going to add and expand. And I would say here on a last point about teacher pay, the thing to think about as far as our state goes, there is a big divide in what the teachers make in Metro Atlanta versus what teachers make in rural Georgia. And so an increase really will have an impact in rural Georgia and may be able to keep those teachers in rural Georgia and not lose them. I would also say that in education policy, we have to address more than just pay. We have teachers leaving in the first five years because of other issues. And that has to be addressed as well as part of a comprehensive examination of what education policy in the state looks like. Uh, Karen, before we move on beyond that point, let's make sure our listeners understand why what you just said is true, that, that often it's uh, t- teachers in metro Atlanta making more money than in rural communities. That's because the state has a baseline for what a teacher will make. And Stacey Abrams wants to raise that to, say, $50,000 for a starting teacher. But uh, school districts across the state are able to supplement that money with local funding. And it's in the metro area where there is more money available to do just that, whereas in the rural areas of the state, it isn't quite as easy to do. So, so I think it's important to point out that's why there is often this gap, Karen. Absolutely, you're right. And there's a lot to the, the idea of what local governments can provide because of their property tax base and commercial base that adds into that. So there's a lot that goes into this formula, but you're correct. There is this baseline where, you know, the governor and the legislature have the ability to provide that minimum, but then the local governments have to supplement that as well. Um, uh, To just continue with uh, this subject for a few more uh, minutes tomorrow, Um, as you pointed out, the Georgia Association of Educators, which represents about 23,000 teachers around the state, did endorse Abrams. They, uh, their their, uh, president, Lisa Morgan, pointed out that... um, that this raise from Brian Kemp uh, was fine, but she says that adjusted for inflation, educators are making less now than they did in 1999. Uh, but more than that, GAE is concerned about the laws that passed in the General Assembly this year, the book bans that could take place ar- around the state, the restrictions on how you teach about race and gender issues. And um, she says uh, that those are issues that are of great concern uh, to teachers as well. Yeah, and Lisa Morgan talked about this the last time we had her on the show and I guess hosted a few months ago, kind of the the yep. pressure that a lot of these teachers are under and, and how even some of these proposals, even if they don't pass, the, the kind of chilling effect it might have on teachers and fears that it could have when it comes to recruitment and being able to retain people in the state of Georgia. And I know more broadly, you know, COVID has really put a lot of stress on the system. Some folks are leaving the profession because of how taxing all of it has been. So I think in general, a lot of these groups talk about concern of being able to just keep teachers in the profession. And and Karen kind of mentioned some of that as well, too. So let me ask, we do have two teachers, certainly, obviously, talking about college uh, educators, but I, I think you can pr- pretty much extrapolate from your experiences, Audrey and Karen, uh, what it must be like to be teaching in K through 12 in the middle middle of a pandemic, given the restrictions that now uh, state law is imposing upon some of the subjects you can be taught. Audrey, just what's your sense of what teachers are experiencing and going to experience moving forward, 
making their jobs even more difficult. So I would add the political dimension here, and that is, you know, um, I don't know about you guys, but my memories of school were, you know, the best memories. I mean, you, you go there and that smell of, of uh, the paste glue that I always used to eat and, you know, the great uh, bulletin boards and the teachers that really cared and loved you. Now, not only teachers, but school administrators have to deal with things like the Proud Boys showing up at a meeting at your school um, and parents fighting among themselves about uh, issues that aren't even real at times when there are plenty of other real ones that affect their children. So if you think about the anxiety and stress that goes along with doing a good job as a teacher, um, K through 12 should not be a place where politics makes the lives of teachers even more difficult when they're dealing with small children. And not only that, I mean, in the context of today, think about the threats where you have politicians talking about how you have to harden schools because of the threat of gun violence. That is a lot of stress and anxiety for anyone to deal with on top of worrying about the scores your kids are going to make, whether, whether um, you know, Candace is reading at the rate that she needs to be reading. So Audrey touched on a very, very valid point about the politicization going into the school system, but also just we have lived, there are children right now in first and second grade who have never had a normal school year like we would think of normal school year. They started in a pandemic, and now, you know, in the next year, they may be sitting through trying to learn not about tornado drills in Georgia, but how to deal with an active shooter potentially coming into the school. That stress and anxiety adds to teachers. And I would also say that teachers now, they have so much added pressure on them related to testing and other things that it sometimes takes away their creativity and innovation to teach. And for many teachers, that's why they went into the field, is they wanted to spark learning in students. And that is getting harder and harder to, to measure, to deal with. I know at even the college level, I see students and anxiety and issues that I never dreamed would come into an 18 to 22-year-old. And just, you know, helping to manage them so that we can just look at content. We can talk about the cool things of politics that I want to share with them. And they're dealing with many more factors at play that we just had never dreamed we'd be dealing with. Um, that's going to be a fight that will go on all summer and into the fall between the Abrams and the Kemp camps, obviously. Just one final note uh, before we move on. The $39,000 starting pay that Abrams referred to is, in fact, base pay for a new teacher. But uh, I don't want to mislead our listeners. The average pay uh, for a teacher in Georgia, once you uh, add in uh, their level of experience, certification levels, uh, the local supplements that many uh, uh, governments uh, offer in various parts of the state, the average pay for a public school teacher in Georgia is $60,000 plus. The average salary across the country for a teacher is about $65,000. So Georgia teachers all in all are somewhere in the middle. But again, it, they are, the better paying teachers are largely in the metropolitan Atlanta area. So we'll watch that debate unfold, and I'm sure it will come back time and time again as we move forward. But um, Tamar, um, Audrey's already mentioned it. The other uh, issue that uh, uh, Kemp and um, 
Stacey Abrams are taking on is uh, school safety in the aftermath of Uvalde. Uh, they both talked to a group of educators down in Savannah and both talked about school safety. Of course, it is not surprising that Stacey Abrams talked about how permitless carry, a bill that was carried by Governor Kemp, pushed hard by Governor Kemp, and finally passed into law, is uh, something that she would overturn because she think, thinks it is going to lead to more uh, potential violence. She says that she does support the right to bear arms. And in the past, she's talked about growing up, learning how to fire uh, a weapon. But she also says it's about time we have more gun safety measures. Uh, we've got to keep guns away from students and schools. And Brian Kemp, on the other hand, says the real problem is hardening our schools. And it's just reflective of kind of the massive and growing divide between the two parties when it comes to issues like guns. I mean, at, at this point, we're getting to the point where, where folks are on different planets politically. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with our primary system and how the folks who tend to vote in each primary, um, you know, tend to be so kind of black and white on the issue. On the Republican side, you know, some of the most um, loyal primary voters are some that are almost one-issue voters when it comes to guns, and we'll see any measure um, kind of rolling back access as a complete no-go, and they will punish Republican lawmakers for anything they perceive as slighting gun rights. At the same time, you have plenty of Democrats who, who think a lot more needs to be done than this emerging compromise in the Senate. They want to see assault weapons bans. Um, they want to raise the age of being able to buy uh, many types of firearms up to 21. Um, so this kind of goes to show um, the, the divide that you're seeing everywhere around the country. I was just going to add to that, you know, Tamar makes a great point about how we are politically on opposite panel, uh, planets, right? We are now so polarized. And the interesting fact in all of this, I wonder if, and, and I've heard from so many voters and, and different people I've spoken with recently about why can't our politicians just think about where we are in America in the middle? So we want some type of ability to own a gun with, um, you know, background checks and everything. But wait a minute, why does anyone need to have an assault weapon or a semi-automatic weapon if they're not in the military? So I think if you, you know, if you're at a rally with your base, whichever party you're in, you're feeding them what they want to hear. But for those voters who are seeking just a common sense solution, they want the parties to come together and come up with something that's protective of rights, but protective of people. And I'm not sure, you know, if, if Abrams is elected and she wants to repeal the laws and things, she's got to work with the legislature on what type of safety measures she can put in place. And if the Republicans still control the legislature, is she willing to compromise and come to the table on that will be a big feat. And then also, if, if Kemp does win re-election and we still have the Republican legislature, what are they willing to go back and address? Are they willing to say that we need to look at the red flag laws, we need to do more, because that's what voters are actually saying they want? Um, Audrey, why don't you weigh in on this? You're muted, Audrey. Gosh, I'm really off the game today. But um, let me just say there's, oh, there's a lot not. of things. <laughs> there are a lot of things going on right here. And, you know, I mentioned polarization. But, you know, um, as institutions right now, we have 
uh, no real governing cycles. We only have campaign cycles. When you have people who are making policy that is focused primarily on getting the activists in their base to give them small dollar donations constantly to build up their uh, campaign coffers, there is no time for bargaining or compromise. And until people recognize that, um, that we're probably still going to have this sort of continued hardening of activists who won't talk to each other, who are going to push the parties even further apart. Now, I think that's changing. And I will tell you, there is a lot of public opinion data out there that says that most people are not in that space, that the median voters of each of the parties, particularly, um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, Republicans may be seeing a little shift there, but it's true of Democrats, too. They don't match up to all of the activist rhetoric. And I think that we're going to have to, you know, perhaps look at ourselves and there might need to be a few reforms about how we conduct um, our elections, how we raise money. Uh, maybe like other countries, we should uh, have some time moratoriums on when people can raise. I think a great thing about Georgia is when you're in session, you're not raising money. You know, what about extending that to a, a sort of a national, um, you know, campaign law? Mm. I mean, we the people need to sort of take control of what's going on, because if we don't, you know, we may end up in an even worse space. Audrey, I have written down that statement because I think it is so accurate and such a great summation of what's happened to us. There are no governing cycles now. There are only campaign cycles. Tomorrow, that's really, uh, it, it says it all. Absolutely. And I, I always thought that covering the House of Representatives, where it was every two years, somebody would win a hard fought campaign and immediately have to turn around and start fundraising because they were worried about their reelection. No time to get comfortable in their new jobs, even figure out where the light switches are. And it just makes me kind of reflect on the redistricting battles that, that just happened in Georgia and how, for the most part, almost all of our districts now are either deeply blue or deeply red. And so the big battle for who's going to get elected is in your primary, not in your general election. And that's why you see this hardening of opinions on, on issues like guns. Before we get to a break, one final word on this. And Karen, since you raised the uh, issue of whether the governor is Kemp or Abrams, how does the legislature respond to doing something about gun safety? Um, one of the things that is troubling to uh, many people about the compromise that seems to be in the works in the U.S. Senate is that um, it would leave red flag laws up to the states. It would offer incentives for states to enact legislation that would uh, keep guns out of the hands of unstable people. And we know just how well the huge incentives to expand Medicaid in the state of Georgia have worked, and I don't see any reason why uh, red flag incentives would do much better here. So yes, I did raise this point, and it, it would fall back to the states. And so we may look across the nation and see a hodgepodge of some states doing certain things and others not, like we've seen with Medicaid expansion. I think the incentives from the federal government will have to be strong for other states to get in line especially on this. And I think it will be incumbent upon, as Audrey mentioned, it's incumbent upon the voters, the people, to really get active. And if people are not happy with what's going on with safety measures and these guns, then they're going to have to let their legislators know that something must be done and changed and get that pushing. 
through the through the the halls of the the gold dome. I real quick personal point about that. Um, back in the day when I was uh, going out and giving talks to various groups about politics, which I've stopped doing. I just I've gotten to the point where I just don't do that anymore. I, I used to talk when term limits were really a big issue when people were running on the question of whether we should have congressional term limits. I, I would often say to the groups that I was speaking in, you don't understand. You already have term term limits. You just have to vote out the, the elected official whose work you don't agree with anymore. That's the way the term limits work the people. They have the vote. And I think, tomorrow there's some similarity to what uh, Karen's talking about. That's something Johnny Isaacson used to say all the time uh, when folks would call him a career politician or why are you running for a third term? Well, I have term limits. Um, you just have to go vote. There, okay. Let's take our first break of the show. I want to come back and talk a little bit about B.J. Pack in his testimony yesterday in Washington. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Audrey Haynes, Karen Owen, Tamar Hallerman joined me for today's Political Rewind. I think I learned a big lesson uh, about how to deal with talking about the January 6th committee uh, yesterday. If you were listening to the show live at 9, um, we talked about, and I led the conversation, what we expected we were going to hear from B.J. Pack and then from the Fox executive who uh, ran the decision desk that called Arizona for um, for Biden and then was subsequently fired. And, and I thought we were going to really get into why B.J. Pack uh, uh, resigned abruptly, that they would want to take that up. And we talked about that on the show. I thought the Fox executive would be asked about Fox being complicit with uh, the Trump uh, organization's efforts to overturn the election. And they didn't do any of that, really. And, and so I'm going to be a little careful in the days ahead, trying to lead conversations, imagining that I think I know what, what the committee is going to do. And, and the reason I mention it now is that it's clear, tomorrow that this committee is very focused on, in a way, they know what they want to accomplish. So B.J. Pack spoke for just a very few minutes yesterday, but what he talked about did, in fact, help them make their case for how Trump and his allies, uh, from election night on, were trying to uh, perpetuate the big lie. And they, they didn't want to talk about his abruptly resigning. It didn't really fit into the narrative they need to establish. B.J. Pack, Tamar, did tell the committee that um, after all the investigations that his office did, they found no evidence, we already know this, that anything in Georgia uh, lived up to the conspiracy theories that particularly Rudy Giuliani was putting forward, right? 
Yeah, BJ Pack talked about how uh, how Attorney General Barr had asked him to look in specifically to some of the claims that Rudy Giuliani was making about the State Farm video with the famed suitcases full of ballots that that Rudy claimed was a smoking gun. Um, and, and U.S. Attorney Pack mentioned, yeah, I looked into it. There's really nothing behind it. It wasn't a suitcase. It was the official ballot box that was used. There was a little bit of uh, confusion that day. Folks thought that they were done for the day with vote counting. They were eventually called back in. But overall, no smoking gun at all. Um, taking a step back, Bill, um, it, it's becoming very clear just how curated these hearings are. I mean, they've talked to something like a thousand people sifted through 150,000 documents. You kind of have to be very deliberate in terms of what you're going to be presenting to the public. They had already talked to DJ Pack behind closed doors months ago. So they kind of, you know, they must have known how he was going to talk about certain things. They probably knew where he was willing to elaborate or kind of talk about something that helps the narrative that they're pushing forward. So I think they're just being very deliberate in terms of what they tell the public, just because they know that the public's attention span is very limited. They don't want this to be like a normal congressional hearing that drags on for six hours, like every other hearing that everyone tunes out on Facebook. They want to keep this as riveting, you know, must-see TV as possible. So it, it makes sense to me why they're doing such short, targeted questioning. Yeah, I think you made it. That's exactly right. And it's, it was a lesson that I learned in terms of trying to anticipate what might happen. Um, Audrey, uh, uh, we heard the most testimony yet from Bill Barr, who uh, obviously repeated over and over again how disgusted he was with the wild conspiracy theories that were uh, being uh, spun by Trump and his allies. He called them whack-a-mole. One crazy theory would pop up one day, another day it would be something new. Uh, he, he said that the allegations in the movie 2000 Mules, which um, was we've talked about it on this show before, made by Dinesh uh, D'Souza, who is a real conspiracy Trump guy, um, which claimed that surveillance video of Georgia voters showed them dropping off multiple ballots at drop boxes. Uh, Barr said those were investigated by the state's top law enforcement agencies. The GBI determined there was no truth or substance uh, to any of that. And he said, quote, I was totally unimpressed with it. Uh, but Audrey, weigh in on this. A couple of things. I think really what the committee was trying to do was to illustrate to people that, you know, this was not something that there was widespread belief or support among many of the people that uh, Trump appointed that were longtime Republicans that worked in this environment. They were telling him there's no evidence. This is fraud. We've investigated everything 100 percent. But this was driven by a handful of enablers and people who were basically on the dole from the Trump campaign and Trump himself. And, um, you know, so I want to just say, too, that the committee is understands how it has to reach people. And in my propaganda class, I teach this um, this theory. It's William McGuire's uh, theory of persuasion. You have to expose people to the information. You have to get their attention. That's why they're doing it this way. You have to have people understand it. That's why sometimes it sounds like a lesson, right? And they're going slowly and making sure that people comprehend it. But then the final thing is people have to yield. They have to accept. 
Um, and then they have to retain this information and act on it. So I think it is a very deliberate attempt to try and expose and teach the American public what actually happened. Audrey is correct. This is a different type of congressional hearing, and Tamar hit it as well, right? That it's curated, it's purposely put information in front of the American um, viewers about how how this all has transpired and explaining it carefully versus if you think back to just the impeachment trial and how that committee hearing ran and the questions and the evidence that was being put together, how different that is and how the tuning into that and learning is so different than what we're seeing at this point. You know, one thing that stood out to me from BJ Pack was when he was talking about the video and how he and his um, team and others they looked at the entire video, not just a clip that Giuliani had put out, right, and others, but the entire footage. And that's how you knew this kind of the voter, the workers, I'm sorry, had thought that they were going home for the night, put it away, and then know they had to come back and count and pull it back out. And you see that through this whole hearing, the entire footage being shown at things. You know, the one thing about like Bill Barr and the testimony, they're showing clips of it. But how fascinating it would be if you're really into understanding this, if you watched his entire deposition from beginning to end and see how it is. Because then you get the full picture of how questions are asked and how we explain things. The American public's attention span is not for that. But we learn when we see the full video footage or the full testimony. That's when we really understand what's all been going on. Yeah, I really love the fact that you're all saying that this is a very different kind of congressional hearing than we're used to. Uh, Tamar? Yeah, and I think it's worth just taking a minute to kind of explain what a normal congressional hearing is and how, frankly, boring they are. I've covered so many in my life. You know, minimum about three hours, usually three to five hours. And, you know, there might be 20 committee members and every single one of them wants to give an opening statement, what I call press release speeches, where they can make little clips that they can put in their press releases, you know, you know, Senator so-and-so really like hits it home on this point. And they go through and each one of them asks questions of every single witness. And many of them are the same questions. And it just goes on and on and on. This is so different in that you're, you're peppering in videos from little tidbits from depositions. You have even video clips with some of the investigators from the committee kind of walking you through different things that they learned. Yesterday, for example, they talked about the fundraising um, pleas of, of Donald Trump and some of the groups that were set up in the aftermath of the election, his election fund. And you hear from a committee investigator kind of walking you through what they learned. Very different, not something you'd see every day. Um, thank you for putting it all in context. Before we get to a break, and we're not going to have a lot of time uh, today on this tomorrow, but it'll play out over a period of time. Um, you've been really on top of the special grand jury in Fulton County uh, looking at Trump's behavior in the aftermath of the election. And the latest uh, report that uh, you published uh, talks about the Cobb election chief who's going to be testifying, I think, later this week. Why is she important to uh, the investigation? Yeah, when I, when I called her up on Friday, she didn't know why they wanted to talk to her. But Cobb, of course, was at the center of this really 
um, extraordinarily and kind of unique audit in the aftermath of the election. Uh, they were looking at signature matches on the absentee ballot envelope, something like 15,000 uh, were looked at. And we know that Donald Trump was very interested in that audit. He sent his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, down to go take a look at what was happening. Um, so we're assuming that, that the Cobb elections chief will be asked about that and some of the other lawsuits that Cobb County was kind of pulled into after the election. Uh, one of her deputies was also called in, I was able to confirm yesterday, uh, who ran the DeKalb elections office in, in 2020. So they seem to be wanting to talk to local elections chiefs. Um, there are a handful of current and former aides to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger who will be coming in in the days ahead, as well as Attorney General Chris, Bar or Chris Carr, um, who's scheduled to come in a week from today. So uh, lots of activity going on at the Fulton Courthouse. Well, one of the things that I read in your story, which I thought was compelling, is uh, that Donald Trump actually called the election chief, uh, had a brief phone call with her, told her she'd be viewed as a hero, right? Not the elections chief. It was the head investigator for Brad Raffensperger's office, Frances Watson, who was uh, oh, oh, helping oh, lead oh. that. But she had run into Mark Meadows at the Cobb County audit, and that's how President Trump ultimately got her number and ended up calling her, like a very extraordinary turn of events. I thank you for explaining that, because we talked about this a bit on the show yesterday, and I said it was the Cobb election chief who'd gotten that call. So thank you for uh, correcting me on that. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. Back with more in a moment. Tomorrow's uh, Political Rewind Newsletter Day. We'll put it into your email box. We'll just send it right to your inbox uh, if you're a subscriber. If you're not, Please join us. We're at gpb.org slash newsletters. You can sign up there, and we'd love to have you uh, join us. Um, let's move on. Uh, tomorrow, let's talk just a little bit about the 10th Congressional District Republican runoff race. It's maybe, I don't know, how do you d decide these days what the nastiest race in town is? But let's just say it is really nasty. Vernon Jones, who is the Trump-backed candidate, uh, running against um, uh, Mike Collins, whose father was a member of Congress, Mac Collins, and they are going after each other in the bitterest terms, most, uh, I think, in some ways, offensive uh, terms possible. Yeah. Um, there are mailers coming out um, from Mike Collins' campaign calling Vernon Jones a radically anti-white racist. You have ads from Vernon Jones with a little kid who's pretending to be Mike Collins saying, my daddy was in Congress and that's why I deserve to be elected. Uh, this has quickly turned nasty and uh, we have about a week to go before we know who, who will emerge as the victor of that contest. Audrey, you got a mailer uh, from this uh, one of these campaigns. Oh, I've gotten mailers like, you know, I could probably um, wallpaper my living room with all the mailers I've gotten <laughs> from a number of these campaigns. And, you know, that wasn't the worst one. I'm, I'm holding up one for you guys to see. And it says, notice, accused rapist, violent rapist has moved into your district. Vernon Jones on the back, three decades of alleged intimidation, rape and abuse. This is hardcore material. 
coming out of both campaigns. It is it is some of the most negative stuff I've I've seen in a while. But you know the big irony, the big irony is that Vernon Jones, who is often considered a discredited, corrupt Democratic politician, is in the running in Georgia's most conservative uh, congressional district. That is amazing to me. And primarily it is because of one thing. And what is that? A Trump endorsement, you know, among the hardcore conservatives. And, and here you have Mike Collins, um, you know, running again. It is nasty, but it is also one of the most ironic races that I have ever seen. Uh, Karen, to uh, quote a famous uh, statement, politics ain't beanbag. We've seen nasty campaigns before. What what gets it to this level? I mean, why why do some campaigns turn as exceedingly nasty as this one uh, has done? So I think we know mudslinging has been out there, right? But this, I think, is a turn. You know, interesting about what I see from Vernon Jones, and, and Audrey would know more. She's seen the mailers more than I have. But um, it's a turn to me. He's also playing from the Donald Trump playbook with ideas like little kids, like we had kind of, you know, the comments to Marco Rubio during the 2016 campaign or Ted Cruz. It's kind of a playback on some of those. And he is relying on that Trump endorsement in a very conservative district. Interesting fact, Audrey, correct me if I'm wrong, but Vernon Jones does not live in the 10th district, does he? Is he moved in yet? Or I, I, Who knows? I mean, I don't, I'm pretty sure he doesn't, and um, he's just hard to know, I mean, what's yes. going on in that campaign. It's a, it is fascinating that he's moved, you know, he moved out of the governor's contest into this one and then has risen into this runoff competitively. You know, you asked me why it's so nasty. I think part of it is it's trying to capture the attention of the voters, getting voters to turn back out now in a runoff. That's a drive to... Uh, we just lost your audio, Karen. Are you, Karen, did you mute? Uh, we just lost some audio. Tamar, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Audrey, do you hear me? I oh, can. okay. Um, We've lost. Uh, well, while we're, while Audrey. We're, I, yeah, while we're waiting on Karen, can I say that I was, um, the University of Georgia uh, hosted a debate uh, on the 10th Congressional District. Matt Collins, I mean, Mike Collins, sorry, uh, did not come to that one and had a conflict, but Vernon Jones was there along with all the other ones. And most of the stuff that Vernon Jones was talking about was like infotainment. He would make jokes all the time. He would, you know, make Fresh Prince of Bel-Air jokes and, you know, very limited discussion of policy. It was a very strange environment to be in. Karen, are you back? No, it completely no. went off. Okay. Okay. Well, we, we have you back now, yeah. if you can hear me. So, Karen and Tamar, I'm going to read you the actual quote, uh, I, because I think it's interesting. Politics ain't beanbag. It, it, the term originally came from a 19th century novel by a writer named Finley Peter Dunn, obviously an Irish writer. And one of his characters is an Irishman named Mr. Dooley, who likes to sit in his favorite Chicago bar and talk about politics. Here's the full quote. Sure, politics ain't beanbag. Tis a man's game. And women, children, and prohibitions do, prohibitionists do well to keep out of it. <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> 
Yeah, this, uh, you know, runoffs are hard and they're unpredictable. I mean, if primaries only attract your, your party faithful, talk about, I mean, runoffs are, are even more of that. So it's about driving excitement, you know, throwing red meat to your base, driving folks to come in and vote for you. And, and this also helps money come into the race. People get so outraged about it. So I see why, why they're resorting to this. And especially once you start hitting, you know, somebody for their daddy, um, you're, you're bound to get a, a response. Yeah. Um, all right. We've only got a couple minutes left. Let's just for a couple minutes. Uh, Karen, I just love to get your take on the fact that New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy has now been sending out letters to a number of states that have strict abortion laws, Georgia being one of them. Uh, we're told that uh, by the uh, by Greg Bluestein, uh, who will be on the show tomorrow, we can talk more about this, that Murphy sent a letter to seven major Georgia-based corporations, they would not name which ones they are, basically saying you should move out of this state for the good sake of the women who you employ who deserve to have access to safe abortions should they be, uh, want to do that. Now, I don't know how far he's going to get, but it's an interesting shot across the bow, Karen. It definitely is. It shows that New Jersey definitely wants some companies to come back because they have lost. I mean, we could look in Sandy Springs at Mercedes-Benz headquarters, came from New Jersey and now in Georgia. So a play to get companies to come back to the Northeast as they've moved south. I mean, other states, Georgia's been guilty of this, right? Writing letters, trying to bring companies here. It's not a new ploy. I think the new piece is not an economic tide, but it's a you know rights tide into women's rights and other public policy initiatives that he's driving. I would say that if, you know, New Jersey and um, other states are wanting to get companies back, they're going to have to think about their workforce, talent, the quality of the state, the living work-life balance, and also the tax environment. Because I think what brought corporations to Georgia were tax incentives and the low cost of living. And so how is New Jersey going to counter that? They can provide the conversations on policy areas where they're protecting rights, but are they willing to kind of incentivize those companies back with some kind of tax break or a way of talking about the quality of life in their state, how it's different, not just for women, but for all the workers that would be coming back? Yeah. And of course, Audrey, anytime there is an attempt at a raid like this, it gives Kemp and his allies the opening to say, we're the best state in the country to do business. We've been named that over and over again over the years. Uh, and in fact, they have a pretty good economic development record right now, especially the Hyundai uh, plant Rivian, if Rivian ever gets its act together. Um, but as Charlie Hazlett of Trouble in God's Country pointed out on our show last week, uh, you better look at rural Georgia and see the problems that rural Georgia faces and wonder if they're going to get a chance uh, to be part of the debate over who the next governor should be. And those are loyal voters to, uh, you know, Kemp and to other Republicans in the state. And, and for that reason, um, they probably will be paying more attention to them. Those are always really tough issues um, in terms of policy. So, um, we'll probably see a bit of a discussion, but I would I would venture that Stacey Abrams has some things to say. She can be a pretty effective speaker when she's talking about those groups. And remember, Fair Count uh, does a lot in that area with rural um, uh, 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 reform constituencies. Yeah, yes. we'll yes. we'll watch all of that unfold. We are completely out of time. 
uh, for today's show. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm grateful to all three of you uh, for being here. Uh, Audrey Haynes, Dean Karen Owen, thank you for being part of the show, and senior reporter Tamar Hallerman, thank you as well. Um, As I said, we're out of time for today's Political Rewind. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow and hope you'll join us then. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.